Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. This is Gart Williams, age 38. A man protected by a suit of armor all held together by one bolt. Just a moment ago, someone removed the bolt, and Mr. Williams' protection fell away from him and left him a naked target. He's been cannonaded this afternoon by all the enemies of his life. His insecurity has shelled him. His sensitivity has straddled him with humiliation. His deep-rooted disquiet about his own worth has zeroed in on him, landed on target, and blown him apart. Mr. Gard Williams, ad agency exec, who in just a moment will move into the twilight zone in a desperate search for survival. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo. Once again, I'm joined by my faithful cohort and fellow Dogecoin holder, Mr. (laughs) ADZ. ADZ, welcome. Welcome. Good to see you. Uh, Today we'll be talking about... One of my favorite episodes of season one, uh, definitely in my top five, episode 30, A Stop at Willoughby. This is just a fantastic episode. So, Eric, you know the routine. Let's just go ahead and jump right on in it. This is a awesome episode, A Stop at Willoughby, the Twilight Zone series episode number 30 in season one. It was directed by Robert Parrish, not the Hall of Fame Celtic Center, but Robert <laughs> Parrish, the director. And it was written by Rod Serling, of course, our featured music by Nathan Scott. And uh, this actually was originally aired, first broadcast on May the 6th, 1960. The total production cost for this episode was $51,501.46. So slightly above our $50,000 running benchmark that we've had for uh, the last um, several episodes. If we adjust that for inflation, we're looking at $457,621.79 in today's dollars. Um, Just by way of technical specs, we're looking at a 25-minute runtime. The sound mix was mono on a Westrex recording system. The color, of course, was 
absent. This was a black and white. And the aspect ratio was 1.33 over 1. The negative format was 35 millimeter. This was a 35 millimeter episode. And the cinemagraphic process was a spherical process. And the printed format was, of course, a 35 millimeter. Uh, Jimbo, the, the cast, take it away, my friend. Sure. The uh, primetime player, the main character of this episode is Mr. Uh, Gart Williams, who is played by James Daly. Um, he's most famous for Planet of the Apes from 1968, where he played Honoris. Uh, you had Howard Smith playing Oliver Miserable. Um He was famous for Death of a Salesman in 1951. This guy is just a great actor. You'll find that out in this episode, too. Yeah. You yeah. love to hate him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Patricia Donahue as Jane Williams. Um, she was in Thriller, not the Michael Jackson video, but in 1974, uh, where she played Elizabeth Lane. Uh, Jason Wingreen as the train conductor with the uh, 19. He was in the 1960 movie, or sorry, he was the train conductor in 1960, but he was also in probably the most famous for uh, Airplane and uh, as Dr. Brody in 1980. You had Mavis Neil Palmer as Helen. Um, she was in a lot of Hitchcock movies, uh, shorts. She was in The Outer Limits. Uh, James Maloney as the 1888 conductor, um, which was Tales of Tomorrow. Uh, which he played uh, Carmichael in 1952. And Billy Booth as the short boy. He was uh, in Andy Griffith. He was in My Three Sons. Uh, you had uh, Ryan Hayes as an engineer. Uh, Butch Hennigan as the tall boy. And you had Max Slayton as the man on the wagon in Willoughby. So, Eric, there is your cast for All this right. awesome episode. Yes, very much indeed. A nice cast there. Uh, let me go ahead and give a... Uh Small uh, synopsis or plot here. Uh, Gart Williams is an advertising agency executive, and he's suffering from exhaustion, stress, and stomach ulcers from the pressures and demands of his raging boss. And that becomes very apparent in the opening scene when we get to it. Traveling to and from work by train every day during the cold and snowy month of November, Mr. Williams falls asleep and, and dreams of arriving at a town called Willoughby. The time is 1888. And the setting is a warm July afternoon, best described as a Courier and Ives painting, uh, complete with a bandstand and bicycles and a conductor on the vintage train. The town is as a place that is peaceful and restful and where a man can slow down to a walk and live his life full measure. Back in the real world, Gart suffers the ordeals of more stomach ulcers and pressures from his employer. After quitting his job and learning that his wife is walking out on him, Gart takes a trip back home by train and falls asleep. He wakes up to find himself stationed at Willoughby and without hesitation walks off to meet the residents who welcome him to a life of serenity. Back in reality, the train conductor looks over the dead body of Mr. Williams, explaining to a man next to him that Mr. Williams jumped off the platform on the train shouting, Willoughby! Unaware of what the name means, they watch as the body of Mr. Williams is hauled off in an ambulance marked Willoughby and Sons Funeral Home. So, just a great, uh, this is a great episode. And uh, Jimbo, do you want to launch right into the the very first scene? You got that pulled up, or did you have um, other things? Sorry, did you well, have other things well, you wanted well, to talk about? Well, once again, you spoiled the ending for everybody, but that's okay. If you're here, if you're here by now, you, you've probably seen the episode. <laughs> Hopefully. This is uh, one of the reasons this is one of my favorite Twilight Zones is because there's the double Twilight Zone yeah. 
uh, twist at the end, which yeah. uh, which was one he he dies, and then uh, the the son the Willoughby and sons on the actual ambulance hearse, whatever. Yeah. Um, but this is like Rod Serling's favorite first season episode of The Twilight Zone. So um, originally, this was actually going to be the one that kicked off The Twilight Zone as the That's at right. the premiere. Um, but it would have been a hard act to follow. Uh, I mean, this is such a great, great movie. Or, sorry, a TV show. It could have been a movie. I wish it was longer. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, when you watch it, you're so involved in these these characters right at, at the get-go. So, um, obviously, this opens up in this executive room board, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you got a bunch of people that looks like they're a bunch of marketing a- a- agents. And you got this guy at the head of the table. He just looks grumpy. He looks like just – he just looks mad. And he's telling you, you're wasting his time. Don't talk to me. Just I want answers. Blah blah blah. And you got one guy there. He's nervous. He's he's twitching his pen or pencil, and uh, you know. And then this guy's like, "Well, where's he at?" You know, the, the head guy's like, "Where's he at?" You told me he would be here. He's already late. He's 34 minutes late. He's 33 minutes late. He's 36 minutes late. He's just nag 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 that push push. But he's just. And then finally, the secretary busts in and says, "Hey, you got a phone call." And uh, so he goes over and answers the phone call, and you come to find out that this boy that he has been grooming to be part of this company, he had given him a big account. It's like, I think they said $3 million yeah. uh, auto auto ad account or whatever. And he basically says, I'm not coming. I've left. I've taken this with me. I'm going to your competitor. So this guy has to go back into the room and explain this to these bosses. Yeah. And I'll let you take it away from that. Yeah, the guy's name was Jake Ross, and apparently he was uh, Gart Williams' like protege. You're, you're correct uh, on that, and it was a yeah three million dollar account. I always make the joke, or we've I've made the joke before that the boss's name is Miserable, and that's short for miserable because this guy <laughs> yep. is a miserable boss, and he would definitely be you would be miserable if you had to work for this guy. And he's, I would assume, and I think this is in our. Our, our trivia section in our notes that um, th- this was an ad agency like um, for advertising. It reminded, I think I've said this before, it reminded me a lot of the, the show Mad Men. Mad Men, I think. And I think that that might, well, I'll save that. I don't want to step on Jimbo's <laughs> trivia for later. But uh, this has like a, if anyone's seen the show Mad Men, it has like a Mad Men type feel and it's a, a high pressure business. And Gart Williams is slowly inching toward the end of his rope. And this guy, Jake Ross, basically has, you know, left him out, you know, to dry. Like, he basically was supposed to bring in an account, and then he sends his resignation letter to the office. And then, of course, that embarrasses Gart Williams, the guy that he was depending on, to not only pull the account in, didn't pull the account that he was supposed to get, but he left the company, or the agency, and then he's taken other accounts with him. So now they've lost even more uh, money, and Mr. Miserable is just, you know, ticked off, of course. And Gart goes you know quiet well actually is you know um miserable is going push 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 and finally gart just has had enough and it's boiling up inside and he just says shut up fat boy or something like that and he gets real mad and you know go ahead Jimbo. Uh, i i can't imagine telling my boss to shut up fat man i know that we would probably be fired in this day and age for saying something like that you know what i mean then probably a lawsuit on top of that for defamation yeah. of character and all that but i just <laughs> my jaw dropped when he said shut up fat. i was like what is this guy doing? You know right. what I mean? You could tell that it, it just had boiled over to the point where he just couldn't take it anymore. And then, you know, after that, he retreats 
to his office and, you know, he talks to, well, he passes through the secretary pool and then goes and sits in his office and he sits down and the lighting is very dark, which Jimbo, you've noted many times before in episodes when the, when the lighting is set in a mood and very dark, uh, and that's sort of the mood we have in his office. And then, uh, Rod does his, uh, opening narration and man, I just think that this, this opening narration is really one of the best, like, he is describing Gart Williams in full detail and what what he's going through in his his life, and I like the line where um, Rod says he's basically held together. I, I'm gonna misquote it, but he says basically he's held together by one bolt, and that right. bolt has been removed. And you know he he's basically his suit of armor is about to collapse in on him, and that's kind of the way that the the episode begins and starts off, and you see the unraveling kind of of uh gart's life so from there where do we go from there jimbo uh, i believe he gets on the, on the train this is right? the first time yeah yeah the first time wanna, he's on the train you want to talk about that portion right so um obviously this guy takes the train back and forth from work um i don't know if he has a car it's never really mentioned but uh, he's famous he's not famous but he's known on the train the conductor knows him and uh you know, he's, he's always sitting in the same seat, so I don't know if they had, like, a science seat. You know, the ticket was good for this seat back then, you know what I mean? Um, so he is always sitting there next to a window, um, and, and the conductor comes by, you know, and they give a little chit-chat. And uh, this is where he just sits back, you know, and he always closes the blind. You know, you can tell it's snowing outside. He always closes the blind, and he kind of leans back, and he kind of, you know, just daydreams, and he falls asleep, apparently. And uh, next thing you know, uh, you hear Willoughby... Willoughby and it's the conductor is a totally different conductor and he's like Willoughby what are you talking about and he raises the blind up and it's a whole new setting it's sunny outside there's a band playing in the gazebo there's mm-hmm. people walking and all this and, and he can't believe what he's doing and the conductor's like this is Willoughby he's like Willoughby and he, he actually steps out you know is this where he steps off and goes out and looks out the back car or whatever and then I, I think he just looks out the window in this. Does he? He's, he goes to Willoughby, I think, a total of three times. But the first time, he's just kind of looking out the window, and he's asking the, the old-timey conductor, like, where is this? And, you know, he doesn't. He gives a kind of a brief description. And I think, well, he gets up, and then he sort of, you know, has a conversation with the conductor. And then this is where the conductor tells him this is a nice, peaceful, restful place where a man can mm-hmm. slow down and live his life full measure. It's kind of a tagline that we hear in the episode many times. Oh, he does. He kind of runs in between the train cars. That's what I thought, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're right. He just kind of looks outside because he sees the music playing, you know, and mm-hmm. everybody's really cordial. It's yeah, nice and outside. Then he, then he instantly wakes up, and that's kind of the end of his first sequence. And then he's back on the 1960s train, and he's talking to the conductor, and he says, oh, man, I... Uh, the con- the conductor says, you know, hey, did you have a good sleep? And he was like, yeah, I was dreaming about this place called Willoughby. And he's like, and he's questioning the conductor, you know, like, hey, is that, is that an actual stop? And he's like, no, nope, Willoughby, never never heard of that. And, uh, you know, Gart's a little bit confused. And then, you know, he just kind of brushes it off and then gets off in his stop. And then uh, the next scene we have is inside uh, the Williams home. And we meet... Uh, Gart's wife in this uh, in this scene, and uh, we meet Janie. And Jimbo, how would you describe Janie? <laughs> oh man, um, 
I guess I would call her a spoiled brat uh, slash uh, daddy's girl that gave her anything she wanted growing up, was never mm-hmm. told no. Possibly. Um, just once uh, doesn't work and uh, mooching off of her uh, hardworking husband and probably the pressures of him. Uh, you know, succeeding because she's obviously mad at him because he yelled at his boss and he's probably got fired. Um, but I just made a little side note here. Like, this guy mm-hmm. is getting yelled at work. This guy's getting yelled at home. I say, mm-hmm. no wonder he has these underlying ulcer issues or a medical problem uh, that may not be know about. Um, I was like, this seems like a really rocky marriage where she no longer wants to be a part of it. I mean, you can kind of get that feeling that she, she, she she's not there. She's just only interested in the money because right. she's living this lavish lifestyle. And all of a sudden, he's threw a rock into there that she may not get to live how she quite uh, lived as comfortably as she once did. Yeah, definitely. I think that would be a good description. She um, she really is the push, push, push at home, and you <laughs> described that very well. And, you know, miserable is the push, push, push at work. And I think, uh, you know, which was typical in that era and time for, you know, women not to necessarily work outside the home. Um, but you can tell that she has a lifestyle uh, aspirations that, you know, Gart really doesn't have. And he describes himself as just being you know a regular run-of-the-mill guy you know that and then i think this line is brought up again to where he wants to slow his life down and live his life full measure and the philosophy of you know the, the, the cutthroat world that he lives in he just wants to escape he wants to escape that world and be who he really wants to be and it he kind of uh they have that confrontation where he's just like trying to explain to her that he's not the young up-and-coming executive anymore that has you know a lot of times when you're young you have aspirations of you know making it um in business or whatever uh your career choice maybe you you're really ambitious maybe in your younger life and you know as you grow older other things in life, maybe family or enjoyment or vacations or, uh, you know, money and success aren't necessarily at the top of your priority list. Other things replace those. And that's kind of, that maybe in a nutshell, maybe it wasn't a good explanation, but that, that's kind of how I see this scene. He's trying to explain all those things to his wife and she's not hearing it, you know. So it was, now, this, this, sorry, go ahead. Is this also the scene where he's like, well, he didn't fire me because I've got so many right. other accounts. Exactly. So, obviously, this guy has pretty much, he said that to his boss, and his boss still thinks enough of him because he has been bringing in so much money, it seems, right. that he's not going to fire him over a silly comment like that. Exactly. So. He says something like he he found it in his delightfully fat heart that <laughs> yeah. you know, he wasn't going to fire me. And the reason why Gart says he's not going to fire me is because... You know, I bring in so much business. So, I mean, it wasn't like Gart was a failing advertising exec. I mean, obviously, he was valuable enough to his company that he could tell his boss off. And the boss kept him around because he was a valuable enough asset that he was bringing money into the company. So he did have some measure of success. It just seemed like it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough at home and it wasn't enough at work. And, you know, he just wasn't cut out for, you know that life anymore or he wanted to change so we leave that scene well actually uh, do is this where he sits and he talks about willoughby to her though well yeah he he does uh in the apartment he 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 tells her about the dream yeah 
uh, gives her a little bit description of a description, but I don't, I don't remember. Does she, does she like brush him off or kind of? She's like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> yeah, like basically, I I married uh, someone who. What was the line? I married someone who wanted to be Huckleberry Finn or something like that. Right, right. And what a jab. She's just, she's, yeah, she's just poking him, man. Just, in, just like, nagging at him, nagging, yeah, nagging, nagging. Yeah. This guy has no ambition at all, and and in, and he Gart kind of agrees that you know under his breath he kind of says well yeah maybe you did or something like that and then yeah we're back on the train after the apartment scene so this is the second time he makes his trek back to Willoughby and i think the 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 1960s conductor tells him um, initially, like, hey, I went back and I looked at some timetables to look for that stop at Willoughby, and I can't find that stop anywhere on any timetable. And then Gart goes to sleep, and he's transported back to 1880 again. And then, uh, Jimbo, this the the briefcase thing. You you mentioned this before when we had conversations about this episode and how important the briefcase is. And you might have it in your notes later. Um, what was there anything that stuck out in this second scene? Um, I think he actually gets a little bit more of a glimpse here. Um, is this where they actually call him Mr. Williams? I think doesn't did, did yeah, they actually I, say Mr. Williams? I think, I think a good so. day, you know, welcome to Willoughby and all that. Um, but you can just tell he's longing to be there in this. It's it's like taking him away to the the places. Um, and I, and I do believe is this the one where he actually you know is this the scene where he actually tries to fall asleep and he can't. You know, he goes to fall asleep. He's like, "Oh, wait, wait! I gotta shut the window for it." Uh, the, he shuts. The, he wakes up and he sh- pulls down the latch, uh, the the window shade. And then he, when he when he wakes up, he it's an old wooden one, and he lifts it up, and he's back in Willoughby. Um, now I have a question: um, Is he on this train already, or has he went to work yet? Um, where he has the two phones? No, that that comes directly That's right after, after this, this okay. scene. So, so is this? Uh, I have a question: Is this uh-huh. him traveling back to work then? I Would think you say? so. Yeah, I think you're. He's going back on the train, okay. back to work. Yeah, I think that's a okay. the way that it explains itself. One thing that stuck out though is, it seems like when he has this dream the second time, that he grabs his briefcase and he and he's about to make the decision. He's going to get off here at the stop at Willoughby, but the train starts to move, and then he starts yelling, "Hey, conductor, conductor, conductor!" And then he's instantly transported. He's waking back up from his dream or. Uh, well, this or, is where this is where he looks. Isn't this where he looks down the hall. Yeah. And uh, yeah. instead and he of and, yelling and, and, to the conductor, right? And then he's instantly, you know, he wakes up and he's on the train to work again. And uh, so this one doesn't last very long. This dream sequence, and then then we go right into he's at the office with the two phones, as Jimbo, as you talked about earlier, and he's on the phone, and the pressures are just mounting. Like he has a secretary coming in. He has. Uh, his boss miserable, miserable. I'm gonna call him miserable the rest of the time. <laughs> That's fine. He, he's on the phone yelling at him, telling him, "Yeah, I want this presentation to look like this. This has got to look great." And blah 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 blah. And he's telling him exactly, micromanage him, telling him exactly how to do every single thing. And then um, there was a problem with one of the photo shoots, and he's on the phone with like a customer at the same time. He's he's got all this swirling around him, and he's his frustration is building up, and he's. His ulcer is kicking in, and he just looks terrible. And uh, and his secretary says, "Hey, somebody's here to see you." Yeah. So he's got he's got two people yelling at him here, and he's all probably got somebody else coming in to yell at him in the office too. Yeah. The boss, I think, is coming in to see him, and he just retreats into his uh, office bathroom, and he just has to get away from everybody. And then 
miserable, miserable comes up on the mirror in the <laughs> bathroom as he's look, kind of looking in the mirror and it's the push, push, push. You got to go harder. You got to win, 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 and push, push, push. And then Gart takes his fist and he punches the mirror and shatters the glass. And then he's really holding his stomach. And now we're coming to like what I think is one of the best parts in the, uh, in the episode. He picks up the phone and calls the operator and asks the operator to get his, you know, his phone at home. And he talks to his wife on the phone, Janie, and he tells her that he can't take it anymore. He says, I can't stay here another minute. You know, you could tell that Gart is cracking up and he's, he's reaching out to his wife. He's hanging by a thin thread and he just wants any help, any reassurance. And this is the coldest part of the episode, not to take away from the fact that this is, this is a great piece of acting. I mean, he just, ah, this is just an amazing piece of acting, I think. And I've always heard stories about in other shows on how they do the, the phone calls, you know, like some, there's no one on the other end. It's Uh basically just you and you have to act like there's someone on the other end. And uh, I think I was listening to an episode about the office and how they did phone calls on the show, the office. And so that just makes me love this this particular scene even more that he just does an awesome job. And then the saddest part, you know, he's at the end of his rope and he's reaching out to the last person that can help him, his wife, and he's begging for help basically. And she hangs up the phone on him. Well, he says, "Will you wait for me? Will you yeah. be there when I get home or whatever?" Right. And it's like click, and you're like, "That's cold blooded, man." That is like so cold. I can't even imagine like reaching out to somebody for help and then. She just, nope, don't care is anything this, about him. Is this where you were going to put in that audio? Yeah, I'm going to put in, a, it's about a minute long right here. Um, and uh, this is just the uh, the actual scene um, played over uh, an audio. Uh, there's no real, I kind of set it up already, so we'll just let it play right here. Janie, there's a guard, honey. I'm coming home. Will you stay there? I just... I just want you to stay there. No, honey, listen, please. I've had it. Understand? I've had it. I, I just can't take this another day, not another hour. This is it right now. I, I, I've got to get out of here. Janie, will you help me, please? Will you please help me? Janie? Okay, so we're back on the train after the uh, the very dramatic scene. I like how it pans to uh, the picture of his wife too as he hangs up the phone. The picture on his desk—that's mm-hmm. just on his like, desk. <laughs> whoa, gives me chills. So he's back on the train, and then uh, he's conversing with the conductor, and Gart goes kind of through his routine again. Pulling down, does he pull down the shade here? Yeah, I think he pulls down the shade. He takes his nap, and then we're back in Willoughby. And then Jimbo, uh, what happens? Take us. So this is this is where at a conclusion. <laughs> this is where he's decided I'm getting off. There's nothing left for me in in in, in the real world. Um, something we may want to touch on real quick before we go any further from this point is earlier in the episode. Uh, Mr. Williams, you know, after he calls the guy the fat guy and he goes running into his office, his secretary says, is there anything I can get you? 
He says, "Yeah, give me a box of uh, razor blades and, and a chart of every main artery uh, in, in in the human body." So obviously, he's already thought about suicide. It, it's just it's it's weighing on him. So so at this point, he's he's the train. He's he he grabs his briefcase and he's decided I'm getting off. And he start starts walking off the back. And he looks down at his briefcase. And basically, he's like, "I'm not going to need this anymore." And he th- right. throws it back on the on the chair that he was sitting in, and he walks off. And he gets off the train at Willoughby, and these two boys are walking up the tall boy, the short boy, and they're like, "Hey, are the fish biting today or whatever?" He's like, "Yeah, they're biting real good." You know, he's like, "Well, maybe tomorrow I'll join you." They're like, "Okay, Mr. Williams, fine. There's plenty of fish to go around." Mm-hmm. And he's walking down through the 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 uh, thing. They're like, "Hi, Mr. Williams. Hi, Mr. Williams." You know, and there's the, everybody just so friendly. They all know him, um, and. Is this this is where the grandfather clock? I believe uh, he looks over right, mm-hmm. and it's swinging back and forth. Mm-hmm. And you're like, um, I don't know what's going on, you know. And then it, you see the chain shift, and it's a I guess you would call it like a lantern or a train light outside yeah, swinging right. back and forth. Yep. Perfect cinematography here because it's right in tune with the clock. Yeah, right in time with the pen. And and you got these two guys standing there. And it's like, well, I don't know what happened. All he said was Willoughby, and he jumped off the plane. And it pans over, and you see um, Mr. Williams laying in the snow. So he has jumped from the thing, uh, the train, to his death. Mm-hmm. And you're like, wow. And then uh, t- that was the first. That was the first Twilight Zone twist. So they're like, yeah, they, well, we'll take him back to the to whatever uh, the the. the crematory wherever you want to take funeral home and they lo- they pick up his body and they put it in this uh, i guess hearst and they shut the door and on the back of it says willoughby and son's funeral home and that is the second twist because willoughby was the place of his final destination if you yep. will which was the funeral home or in his mind um the actual place that he ended up mm-hmm. so a little bit um things about this episode that we'll talk into one one thing that first comes to my mind when i think of willoughby is the band the band's playing they play a bunch of old uh stephen foster songs and the one yeah. that sticks out the most well they played oh susanna they play camp town races and then they played beautiful dreamer um and i thought that was really interesting that beautiful dreamer's playing because um he's he's dreaming when this is all happening mm-hmm. um it's a place that he wanted to make up in his mind um so i love the the use of the of, of, of the music in willoughby it sets the tone it's it's lighter it's you can tell it's a much more happier place than yeah. his work was always like dark and gray and getting yelled at and all that and this is just everybody loves everybody here right. um do you have anything to, to add so far no no that was that all was right. a great description. I just, I, the distinction, I was totally agreeing with you. The distinction between the Willoughby music and, you know, his actual real life was, yeah, I love the the music part. Um, Willoughby, Ohio is actually a real place. Um, they actually have a yearly community event, which me and Eric might take a road trip to, uh, involving trains in honor of a stop at Willoughby known as the last stop at Willoughby. And I think that would be really cool. Uh, the train stations called out by the conductor on the 1960 train are real. At the time of the filming, stations such as Stanford and Westport and Sagatog were stations on the New Haven Railroad. They continue to exist as of August 2015 as stations on the Metro North Railroad. However, present-day maps, station signs, and conductors do not mention Sagatog in the station name. Um, the outdoor train station at Town Square sets uh, used for Willoughby are the same ones used for the opening and closing scenes of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance in 1962. Okay. Um, most people think it was on MGM's lot, uh, Studio Lot 3. Uh, this is the first episode that includes the series title in its opening narration. So I thought that was really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Uh, 
Gart Williams' home phone number, uh, capital C, capital A, and then P-I-T-A-L 7-9899, is also a legitimate telephone exchange in Westport. Um, let's see here. The 2000 uh, TV movie uh, for all time starring Mark Harmon was based on this episode. One of the last episodes of 30-something clearly pays homage to this episode. It has the same title, and in it, Michael experiences a crisis similar to that of Williams, though it does not end tragically. Uh, in the TV series Stargate Atlantis, uh, The Real World uh, was the name of the episode. Dr. Elizabeth Weir awakens in the acute care unit of Willoughby State Hospital, a psychiatric hospital. Uh, she is told that her memories of the last two years off-world was a fantasy and that she had imagined the Stargate project. Hmm. And Eric touched this a little earlier. The Matthew uh, Weiner, creator of the TV series Mad Men, acknowledged the influence of the Twilight Zone on his work and how Don Draper's life had many superficial similarities to the main character of this episode. Hmm. Weiner said they paid homage in The Sopranos also with Tony Soprano leaves behind his life in his briefcase. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit too, but this can be considered a sister episode to the episode Walking Distance mm-hmm. yeah. um, that we've already covered. Uh, they were both ad executives, but unlike Martin Sloan's Homewood, where he actually time travels back to his, his youth and sees himself, Willoughby is actually clearly a fantasy or a dream. Everyone greets Mr. Williams by his own name, uh, unlike the other one where uh, Homewood, where they did not even uh, recognize Martin Sloan. And he's like, hey, I am Martin Sloan. Here's my driver's license. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Uh, that's 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 all I got. You got anything to add right there before we go on to our takes? Yeah, I just had one uh, little bit of trivia um, from the book that I have. It says, uh, Mrs. Barbara J. Compton of the New York Telephone Company wrote to Serling, care of CBS Network, making special notice of a mistake she observed in the episode regarding the speakerphone used on the show. It was used incorrectly, she explained. It was shown with the telephone receiver off the hook. The speakerphone could not possibly work this way because as soon as the receiver is taken off the hook, the loudspeaker and the microphone automatically disconnect. I just thought I'd call this to your attention uh, so that you should correctly, uh, should you intend to use the speakerphone on any subsequent shows, it would be used correctly. So I thought that was yeah. interesting that a, uh, a, a telephone company employee wrote into the show to make sure that, hey... You know, make sure you get the technical uh, information right if you do it in any uh, future episodes. So something I thought that we might start doing, I don't know if Eric went back, since this is our second time recording this because somebody lost the audio file of the other one. Uh, we won't <laughs> mention any was. names, but <laughs> um, I thought something we would do is we would write down our own takes on the episode, uh, things, you know, just little quick pro codes or whatever. I have mine written out. I don't know if Eric did, but I'll go ahead and let Eric go first. His thoughts, feelings on this episode. You know, I didn't write any postscripts um, going forward, but I just I just usually have my questions and quotations and observations section, and this is just what I wrote down. This is a man who was at the end of his rope. The phone call to his wife saying he couldn't take it anymore was bone-chilling, and if you listen closely, it sounds as if she hangs up the phone on him in his hour of greatest need. Uh, which we kind of already talked about that a little bit. And then just this quote, the the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And that quote's by Henry David Thoreau. Just the fact that, you know, Gart Williams was living in this quiet desperation. He was looking for an escape uh, from his um, his life, really, uh, the, the life that was bearing down on him. And then, of course, we we had a discussion about this, and I've had time to think about this question again since we've talked about it before. Uh, Was this a suicide on the part of Gart Williams? And, of course, I think it's pretty 
I wouldn't say obvious, but it, it looks like it appears to be at a suicide because of that line, the Jimbo, that you quoted before. And then we had some discussion about whether it was intentional or not. And, you know, I, I'm with you. I think we talked last time you said you didn't think it was intentional. I don't think it was intentional either. I don't think that he was purposely committing, you know, suicide. I think he really thought in his mind, and maybe it was due to distress, and, you know, he was having some sort of mental breakdown or crack up that he really thought that Willoughby was a real place and he was just trying to go there. Um, so, yeah, I don't, you know, obviously leaping to your death, he, he had some sort of mental issue where he thought that, you know, he was going somewhere else. Um, but, you know, that's that's the cool part about the Twilight Zone. You know, it's the, the converging of the mind and the imagination and, you know, and all those elements are woven into this um, episode, and that's what makes it so great. Um, and then uh, one last thing I think I wrote down, his boss at work was push, 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 and his wife seems to be demanding of the same at home. And she says, and just where, um, and just where would you be if it weren't for my appetite? Sorry, I had a little trouble reading that. So she was sort of the driving force. She was the appetite. She was the one that was desiring a better life, you know, better social status, better everything. And he was just a guy who just was trying to be a regular guy and just live a, a normal life. Again, just the dialogue between Janie and Gart in that apartment or uh, home scene was great. And uh, just the, the notation of the significance of the briefcase, which Jimbo kind of already talked about a little bit, how they paid homage to uh, so the Sopranos and how that that briefcase, that prop, was important in, in the uh, shooting of the scenes. But that's pretty much all I had, and I know you had a a good postscript that you had written down. So take it. Right. And I'm going to try to do this uh, every episode that we do from here on out, just because I write down my thoughts as I go. Um, But one thing to add to you is I wonder if the ulcers, um, if they were the ulcers or they could have been a a different major medical issue that maybe affected his brain too. Um, Because maybe he was physically ailing, not just mentally, but maybe also physically breaking down, which could come from mental. So I just wanted to throw that in there before this. So here's here's the thoughts that I wrote down, and, and we'll close the show. So I wrote, how many of us have ever felt the pressure at a job? I know I have. I'm sure Eric has. Uh, trying to make a deadline for a project or close a deal worth a lot of money. How many of us have ever had one of those, air quote, bosses? How many of us have wanted to do such a perfect job at a presentation that it literally makes you sick to your stomach and the thought of quitting becomes more than just a thought? How many of us have to uh, have forgotten to leave work at work and brought it home that, uh, to the point where it affected your own family? A stop at Willoughby shows the struggle of real life to a perfect place where time stops, or at least has slowed down where a man can live his life in peace. In this episode, Rod Sterling gives us a look at two extremely opposite ends of the spectrum of life. We have been taught to work hard day after day, and someday you will be able to slow down and look forward to retirement. Unfortunately, many people never reach that point, or if they do, they are already so burnt out from all the hours that they put in at work that it doesn't matter, they can't enjoy it. Mr. Williams is at a breaking point in this episode up to the point where he does not wish to go on. Was Willoughby just a figment of his imagination uh, conjured up in Williams' mind? Was Williams given a glimpse of his own heaven, if you will, where peace and serenity seem to rule in everyday life instead of the hustle and bustle of a 9-to-5 job? 
Rod has intricately crafted a story that makes you invest in Mr. Williams, given the short time that you've got to know him, even feel sorry for him, with him ultimately reaching the one destination where he desired that he really wanted to go, and that was Willoughby. Sterling not only does this, but gives us a double dose of the Twilight Zone twist, if you will, at the end of this episode. One, Williams jumps to his death after shouting Willoughby on the train. Second, the hearse that comes picks up Williams' body has the name Willoughby and Sons on the back door as it shuts, seemingly to encase Mr. Williams as signify that he is and is, will always be in Willoughby as one door closes of his real life and the other one is just begun in his new life. This is an absolutely fantastic episode and is easily in my top three episodes of season one. It's a 10 out of 10 for me and maybe just maybe someday everyone can come up with their own slice of Willoughby in the Twilight Zone. Very nice. So... With that, I believe this episode's coming to a close. Uh, any final thoughts, Eric? So what do you think of the episode? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me tell you. I didn't really care for it. <laughs> it was terrible. But I, but I thought it was fun to actually sit down and, and write a little, a little of my thoughts on paper. And I think you should do the same. That way we have what we're yeah. thinking at the time we're watching this. I agree. Um, it was so. uh, definitely, I would agree, 100%, 10 out of 10. It might even, boy, it's a it's a close race between Time Enough at Last and this episode. Uh, for the top spot. One, for the top spot. Yeah, it's just, it's one of my favorites. Yep. So, well, I think that's a wrap on this episode. And Eric, take it away. And cut. Willoughby. Maybe it's wishful thinking nestled in a hidden part of a man's mind. Or maybe it's the last stop in the vast design of things. Or perhaps for a man like Mr. Gart Williams, who climbed in a world that went by too fast, it's a place around the bend where he could jump off. Willoughby, whatever it is, it comes with sunlight and serenity and is a part of the Twilight Zone. Mm-hmm.